0: Aloha and welcome to Elevating Motherhood. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Lori Beth Aldridge. I've taken my passion for conversation, perspective, and supporting moms and turned it into a podcast. My goal is to talk openly about motherhood, offer new ideas, and help moms find their confidence in this busy and sometimes overwhelming world we live in. We're going to dive deep, open up, and elevate motherhood. Thanks for being here with me. Let's get started. Thanks to Blossom and Root for supporting today's episode of Elevating Motherhood. Blossom and Root is the homeschool curriculum my family uses and loves. It's a nature-based, Charlotte Mason-inspired curriculum. We'll find out more about Charlotte Mason in another episode later this month. It's also age-appropriate and really fun. Blossom and Root has been gently guiding and supporting families for years. Their thoughtful curriculum begins at the preschool level and acts as a much-needed resource for this age group. Blossom and Root's Early Years Volumes 1 and 2 are valuable tools for parents with young children, whether you choose to pursue homeschool long-term or not. The information and ideas are easy to follow and engaging. The other great part about Blossom and Root, they've offered a discount code for Elevating Motherhood listeners. Use the code LORIBETH10, 10 for 10% off your purchase. If you're new to homeschool or simply in the market for a new curriculum, check out Blossom and Root. I share more about them over at elevatingmotherhood.com forward slash homeschool. That's elevatingmotherhood.com forward slash homeschool. Today's episode is also sponsored by Homeschool Explained. I used to teach in-person workshops here on Maui that helped families get started on their homeschool journey, feeling resourced and confident. To meet requests from parents on other islands and on the mainland, I turned the workshop into an online resource for you called Homeschool Explained. If you're thinking of homeschooling and aren't sure where to begin, I've got you. I put over 10 years of homeschool experience into a three-hour video that you can start and stop at your own convenience. I go over all of the most common questions I've gotten from parents and workshop attendees over the years. I share with you about curriculum, homeschool styles, when to start, subjects to teach, planning, schedules, cost, state laws, umbrella schools, testing, record keeping, community, socialization, and more. My goal was to overshare so that when you finish the course, you'll feel resourced and ready to go. And I'm also offering the biggest discount I've ever offered. But you know what? I enjoy getting discount codes for you so much. I thought that it was time that I give one too. So if you use the code LoriBeth50, H five zero, you will get 50% off of Homeschool Explained. Whatever the price is at that moment in time. So, right now for the month of August 2020, it is already 50% off, but I'm giving you that lifelong discount code. Lori Beth 50 to get 50% off the 50% off price right now. So it's still a great deal. If you didn't catch this episode until September of 2020 or October, 2024, Lori Beth 50 will get you 50% off whatever the price is at that moment in time. So that is my thank you to you because I want you to feel resourced. I want you to feel ready. And I know that this course will help get you there. So. There's more information over at elevatingmotherhood.com forward slash homeschool, or you can go to homeschoolexplained.com to just enroll directly into the course. I cannot get over the fact that Julie Bogart is here, the Julie Bogart on the show to share all of her incredible insight and inspiration with us and just wow, get ready to elevate your homeschool and your motherhood journey. If you know, you know. You'll get why I'm so excited. If you don't know yet, you will after today. Julie has been my go to resource for all things modern homeschool since I had my own children. I've read her book more than once. I listen to her insightful podcast on a regular basis. I use her curriculum, Brave Writer. I've been inspired by her poetry tea times and just constantly recommend her and her work to all of my homeschool families and even educator friends as well. Julie Bogart is the popular voice of common sense and compassion in the homeschool community. She's the creator of the innovative writing program I just mentioned, Brave Writer, and the popular fast-growing practice called Poetry Tea Time, which you will want in your life for sure. She is the founder of a homeschool coaching community called the Brave Learner Home. She home-educated her five children for 17 years And all of them are now globetrotting adults. Julie draws from her work with tens of thousands of homeschool families over the last 20 plus years and her own homeschool journey to enrich the homeschool and parenting experience for all of us. Her writing program includes award-winning online writing classes and paradigm-shifting writing manuals that allow parents and kids to become allies in the writing process. Julie is also the author of the best-selling book, The Brave Learner, and host of the popular podcast, A Brave Writer's Life in Brief. She enjoys raising African violets and playing with her brand-new granddaughter. Julie lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is near and dear to my heart, and she joins us here today. So without further ado, let's welcome Julie to the show. Aloha, Julie. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's such an honor to feature you on the show for so many reasons because you have actually been a huge influence in my life as a mom and as a homeschool parent. I constantly hear your reminders and your reframes in my own life and I just want to say thank you so much for making time for my listeners and for me, because I keep mentioning Brave Writer and all that that entails to everybody. And it's just super special that my listeners get to hear from you directly about all the amazing support that you offer.
1: Well, that's just wonderful. I love being here and I appreciate that.
0: Hmm. Gosh, I appreciate you so much. I am asking all my homeschool guests to share a bit about their homeschool journey, which, you know, for you, their entire, there's an entire book about that, (laughs) (laughs) but just so they have a general idea of like how many kids, how long you were homeschooling, things like that.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So I have five adult kids. Their ages are 23 to 32 Uh, My oldest is married and I have a brand new granddaughter who's six Mm -hmm. months old, so that's exciting new experience for me. All five of them were homeschooled for a total of 17 years exclusively. However, some of them did do some public high school. So I had one daughter who took like electives, like acting and French uh, when she was a sophomore and a junior and a senior. And then I have a couple of kids who did full-time home uh, high school. So one who did four years, one who did three years, one who did two years, and then one kid who tried it and hated it and did only homeschool. So out of the five kids, I've had a variety of academic experiences when they were under my roof. That continued after they moved out. So we had um, three kids go to state universities. I had one kid who went to a great books program in Annapolis at a school called St. John's. And then my oldest son tried college three times at the University of Cincinnati and quit all three times and became a self-taught computer programmer. And then we joke about it all the time because he earns more money than the other four. So That's awesome. um, Yeah. So in terms of our home education experience, the goal I've always had is for them to find their own path and to have the support that they needed to get where they wanted to go. And that involved a whole variety of options as a result.
0: Wow. I'm starting to get the sense that variety is the theme of your life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's a given with five kids. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a temptation to want to solve homeschooling or solve parenting. And these are not things to solve. Uh, you're not solving your child. I remember mm-hmm. saying to my mom at one point, we're very close and she's in her 80s now. and I was thinking about, you know, how much I was still experiencing the worry over my adult kids. And mm-hmm. while we were on the phone, she started talking about my sister. My sister has a very busy life. She works full time as a counselor. She's She has three kids. She's also a surfer. Uh, and, you know, she had a lot going on. And she got really tired and was starting to have some kind of health moment. You know, I'm sure it's passed now, but it was fatigue combined with a cough or something. And my mother was hand wringing about it over our phone call. And like a thunderbolt, I I suddenly said to her, wait, you mean when you have kids in their fifties, you're still like wanting to give maternal advice about rest and eating right and seeing a doctor? Like that doesn't go away. And she's like, unfortunately, it lasts as long as you live.
0: Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks to your mom too for sharing that because that's really important for those
1: of us with littles at home to know. Well, exactly. I think we need to take a long view. And it was interesting Mm, after she said that, I suddenly thought, well, yeah, I've been through a divorce. Who did I call? My mother. Who did I talk to on the phone every day when I was in pain and crying? My mother. Who was worried about her grandchildren? My mother. Who has worked to sustain a relationship with my ex-husband? My mother. Like, what I did is I brought people in, I created new people, and I just added more people for her to care about and worry about. So I think we need to take kind of a long view here that today's, you know, tiny little problem with the three-year-old who won't finish his lunch Oh, my goodness. It's so minuscule. If you think about the scheme of that child's entire life and all of their future does not hang in the balance of whether you successfully get them to eat the carrot, you
0: know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I appreciate that mindset shift big time um, because I use that a lot, especially with the littles. Right now we have four kids in our house and two of them are toddlers. So close in age, they act like twins. (laughs) There's a lot of that twin energy happening right now and it gets a little giggly and a little wild. (laughs) Totally. But even when I'm having a hard moment, like in the moment when we're trying to sort it all out, I'm like, you know what? long-term relationship, keep that in mind. So even if I'm having a hard moment, I have to keep that long-term relationship in mind. Actually, I feel like especially when they're that little in the toddler age.
1: Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when Liam, my youngest, well, my second youngest, he was the youngest at the time. He was climbing up on a table to pour himself a glass of milk. So he's like three or four years old. And of course, I'm trying to manage the whole family. So I start to load up like a yelling comment, like, hey, don't touch the milk. You need help, blah, blah, blah. And my mother, who was visiting, happened to see me winding up. And before I could even unload this torrent of, you know, stop what you're doing, she turns to me and says, oh, look, Liam, only four years on the planet. Imagine how much he still has to learn. (laughs) I was instantly shamed. I reframed it. I was like, oh, yeah, he just needs help. So I get over there, I hold the cup, I help him pour the milk. He's so excited. You know, it was only a year or two later that he was pouring milk on his cereal and didn't need help at all. But, you know, we're such prisoners of the moment, aren't we? And our Mm -hmm. own ability to manage all the stress and the chaos has limits. We have our own limits. We're still growing. Uh, and we can feel overwhelmed, and it's completely legitimate, but our our little people do not have a mission to thwart our lives and make us unhappy. That's not their goal,
0: right, right, absolutely. I love that. Thank you, Julie. You actually offer so many mindset shifts for us to consider in all of your work that i'll I'll highlight at the end because I want listeners to know about all of your resources. One of the big mindset shifts that really struck me and has helped me from the very beginning with my homeschool journey is recognizing what learning is, just recognizing learning because it is so much more than the stagnant view that our culture tells us about. And I'd love for you to speak with us about what it means to recognize learning because once we recognize it, it's really easy to see that learning is actually happening all the time.
1: Yeah, so the easiest way to think about learning is to think about anything you've learned as an adult. So I remember when I was in my early 20s, newlywed, and I realized I had always wanted to know how to draw, but no one had ever taught me. I didn't take art classes. I had assumed, like many children do, that I wasn't talented, that I wasn't gifted in that way. But I came across a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Dr. Betty Edwards, and it was written to adults who had always longed to be able to draw. So Mm. I bought the book, I read it, I did all the exercises, I did them every day. I was so excited that this was possible. I noticed my mind and brain changing how I perceived and I gained skill with the pencil. And the next thing you knew, I was drawing. Well, the learning journey looked like this. I had a trigger of curiosity. I was scanning the horizon for a resource. I located the resource. Out of my own motivation, I read the resource. I applied what I was learning from the book to actual practice. I wasn't tested on the content. It wasn't like I read a chapter and then took a test to tell you what was in the chapter. I actually had to draw (laughs) to see Mm -hmm. if I was grasping what the chapter was teaching. And the proof that I had learned was my own evaluation of what was on the page after I tried the drawing practice. And the satisfaction came from having achieved what my goal was to begin with. In other words, it wasn't a goal Betty Edwards set for me. It wasn't a goal a teacher set for me. It wasn't a goal my husband set for me. This was something that had value for me personally. Mm -hmm. And it became a real symbol as I moved forward of what it meant to learn as an adult. In school, we're told that there is a body of information we need to master in order to be an educated person. And even though there may be some truth to that, we do want to be introduced to subject areas, to skill sets that we don't even know exist, let alone know to want to master, we still should have some kind of meaningful relationship to that information, And a desire, a curiosity trigger that helps us over the hump of the unfamiliarity and the lack of skill. Because when things are unfamiliar and you don't have skill, they're not fun. You don't want to do them. So there has to be something that draws us forward. So when I think about learning, especially with children, I think about that curiosity trigger. I think about meaningful use. How is this related to a child's life today? not just something they have to accomplish to move up a grade or to get into college or to someday have a career, but why the times tables right now? What would that empower a child to do right now? Why would times tables even be valuable? So we start with triggering curiosity, we try to find a meaningful use, and then we give lots of space for risk and experimentation and failure. You should not feel like there's pressure to be accurate and successful when you're just getting familiar with something new. You need to have opportunities to grow without the fear that you will be penalized with a grade or a low score or criticism Mm -hmm. from somebody in charge of you. You need support, Mm -hmm. enthusiasm, laughter when you make a mistake, opportunities to re-up, someone to brainstorm with you to come up with new strategies if the ones you're trying don't work for you. And at a point where you see ease and skill kick in, most people feel a degree of satisfaction and mastery.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for that. I'm really struck by your use of the word curiosity and all of that um, because listeners will know that in some of the previous conversations I've had about not homeschool related topics, curiosity is like the missing ingredient for things like successful moms groups or making mom friends and things like that. If you're not sure what to do, or then get curious about the other person, ask questions, things like that. So I love that curiosity is this ingredient that keeps showing up over and over again here on the show, especially when it comes to education and young children and ourselves, too. I love that. And I was going to ask you what elements you feel like make up a quality education, but you just gave us a brilliant list because it really, to me, a quality education is more than strong and rigorous reading, writing, arithmetic in a curriculum and A's at the end of the year.
1: Can you imagine if you wanted to become a quilter and you join some kind of quilting group at a sewing shop and the way that they promoted this class was, it will be rigorous and especially challenging. Who's gonna commit any money to a class like that? You wanna join a class or a set of lessons that are approachable, where it's in a low bar at the beginning where you're drawn mm-hmm. in based on the skills you already have. You know, I wouldn't go learn how to ride a horse if someone said, well, the only way you're allowed to ride a horse is if you come ready for a rigorous and very challenging program. That's really not how most of us want to learn anything. And uh, I, I think another good example might even be technology. We're always mm-hmm. looking for user-friendly, right? We're looking for something mm-hmm. that is self-guided, that any, you know, dummy can jump through the hoop. I mean, we have idiots guides and dummies guides selling in the multiplied millions of copies for a reason. People are looking for the low bar entry point that allows even them to participate. So when we talk about a rigorous education and then we're applying that to children, it's almost like a disenchanting force before we even begin We're literally Mm -hmm. taking the life out of what could have been an opportunity for curiosity and exploration and fun. And instead, we're substituting it with, you know, hard work and duty. And by the way, it's going to be even harder than you want it to be. It's going to be even more Mm -hmm. challenging. It's going to be even more demanding. I mean, what kind of setup is that? Who is in charge of marketing? That's (laughs) just ridiculous. (laughs)
0: That's true. And when you mentioned the quilting example, because that is on my list of things that I personally want to learn for myself, if I walked into a quilting class like that, I'd be like... I just have a tub of baby clothes. I want to turn into a quilt. Like it doesn't even have to be perfect. You know, I just, I love that. I love that you take us to the core of our beliefs about education and life and our relationship with our children and our curiosity and all of it. I just thank you so much for that, because I think this will be a really empowering message for parents to hear as they start to dive into this, because it is like we have this notion that unless it's hard, it is not really learning or it's not really education. That's
1: exactly right. So what that is, I call that the ghost of public school past. (laughs) This lady who sits on your left shoulder, she's got the half moon glasses and the red pen. She wears a bun, (laughs) right? And she's there to find your mistakes. She's there to remind you of what you haven't done yet. She's there to tell you that wasn't challenging enough. That wasn't rigorous enough. Because that is the drumbeat of school. The way that schools prove themselves to adults is rigor, high achievement, grade point averages. Because we've been trained for over a century to value that as proof of performance. It's not because intrinsically adults even want rigor for themselves. What they're wanting is proof that their kids are getting the education they deserve. And the marketing language of over a century has been therefore it must be rigorous but Mm -hmm. if we just step back we examine how we learn anything as adults and if we applied the same strategies to children we would see such a different outcome i I think people like maria montessori are, are just those brilliant forerunners to what education could have been she saw that it takes this freedom of exploration manipulatives, using the whole body, deep diving into a subject while you're curious and passionate and interested, partnering with somebody who can help you, not just a teacher in the front of the room expecting things of you. Uh, I was in grad school and one of my professors made just an amazing statement. He said, if Maria Montessori had been a man, the entire education system as we know it may look completely different. But because she was a woman, When she put her theories of education forward, they were received as alternatives to, quote unquote, real school, you know, the John Dewey method. And so I think it's fascinating for us, you know, a century later, where we don't have to worry about (laughs) whether women are smart, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) Let's actually trust some of these female voices who both have the maternal instinct and the educational experience. That's what home educators are, homeschooling Mm -hmm. mothers in particular, are contributing a whole world of insight into what education can be. And I think that it is germinating from a place of relationship, curiosity, experimentation, holding space for failure and mistakes in the journey Mm -hmm. to mastery. We know this because we live with our children We don't just see them in a building and give them grades for the administration. And that's the opportunity we have right now to move away from this rigor, this, well, if it's hard, it must be real. That's the Mm -hmm. danger. That's Mm -hmm. the arena we want to avoid. And I tell parents Mm -hmm. that all the time, when you notice yourself being dissatisfied with a child's work because it looked easy, Mm -hmm. pause really quick and think about all the things you do with ease. And how irritated you'd be if someone just told you you had to up the ante. You know, I'm a Mm -hmm. marathon runner. And imagine I finished 26.2 miles. And somebody says to me, yeah, but you haven't run an ultra. You know, if you were a truly rigorous runner, you'd run ultras 50 miles, 100 miles. I mean, that's just incredibly insulting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not validate and appreciate the effort that was just expended.
0: Well, you floor me all the time, but you definitely floored me with your um, observation about Maria Montessori. I'm like, huh, yep. Yep. Julie dropping a new truth bomb for all of us to hear. And it's a really important one for new homeschoolers, especially to hear. I love that you have just taught us to really get to our core beliefs about education, reframe learning and, and how we teach our children and what's important and what's not. I'd love to talk about some of the pragmatics of what that looks like, because you've now motivated us to do that. One of the philosophies you talk about in your book is accidental learning and I just have to tell you your Pony Express example from the book made me laugh the entire time I was listening to it because in seventh grade with the big poofy bangs and the spiral perm I did a Pony Express project with Barbies on video like VHS like borrowed the neighbor's VHS recorder went to my friend's basement acted out our Barbie thing of the Pony Express
1: that's amazing
0: (laughs) and it was hands down probably the most interesting project of my entire public school (laughs) education no, but now it's like a family laugh legend in our house just so you know like i'm sure my mom still has that vhs tape
1: <laughs> but it's so true you remember mm-hmm. it because yeah. of all that investment right getting the Barbies, going to the basement having to learn how to use the vhs how mm-hmm. to set up the camera so you get the best look yeah. and then thinking through the yeah. strategy of the story you wanted to tell these are all invisible learning moments that don't yes. get credit here you yes. were being creative, ingenious, learning technology, learning storyboarding, learning how to represent historical examples using modern Barbies. This is a kind of level of critical thinking that is so underappreciated in traditional mm-hmm. education. We're so interested in, does she remember the dates of the Pony Express? As though that's going to help oh, you gosh, I don't in that. your future. <laughs> you don't remember that. You remember, no. else, right?
0: Yeah yeah, I remember I had fun, and I remember it was entertaining. and I remember it was like, a it was a good moment. And you're right. I was super invested, and we were so motivated to learn about the Pony Express for sure. Wow, thank you for pointing out the invisible learning moments. Um those are super important for sure. how do how do we make space for more accidental learning like that and the in honoring these invisible learning moments?
1: so, One of the things that I like to recommend is to be patient and take Mm -hmm. some time to observe your kids. I always wanted to to like charge right in with a new strategy. But Mm -hmm. the number one way that you can grow learners is to be a student of your children, not a student of the school subjects, not trying to think of new tactics to get them interested in the stuff that's important. I'll have moms sometimes write to me and say, I tried your idea and my child... Bucked it, resisted it, hated it. Well, what I know about that usually is that the child feels manipulated. It's not that the parent isn't sincere in adding brownies to tea time and poetry or, you know, offering to throw the frisbee to practice uh, times tables. Those are wonderful strategies. But if your child is resisting them, it's because they don't trust you yet. They know that you're trying to trick them into doing the thing they don't want to do with just a little bit of spoonful of sugarness. Instead, become a student of your children. Get to know what they love, get to know how they spend their time, get to know the way they're using their brains now and jot it down, make notes. Force yourself to actually see what's going on. So I'll give you an example. You know, I have a son that I mentioned earlier, and when he was older, Liam, he really got into playing chess, and I was very proud of him playing chess. He joined a chess team, and he ended up being first board. This was in high school, and I went to literally every chess tournament, and, you know, there isn't a person alive who isn't impressed when I tell them that my son played chess. One of the questions I always get is, how do I get my child to play chess? Because we esteem it. We see chess Mm -hmm. and violin and Latin and poetry as these prestige subjects. And we just assume that if my child plays chess, he's learning a lot of really good stuff. Simultaneous to his chess playing life, he was a huge online gamer. And unlike chess, I never watched him play. And one day I was sitting at my computer and he yells to me from the other room, Hey mom, come here, I need you to see me on on my computer. And being the fabulous mother that I am, I said, "I'm busy. Can't you just tell me?" <laughs> <laughs> he said, "No, mom, I need you to come now." I said, "Well, I'm I'm not going to come now." And then he finally just yells at me, "Mom, I need you right now." So I then I woke up from my computer sleep and I ran over to the computer. And there he was in this game and he says, "I need you to know, I'm on a team. We are the 10th ranked team in the world and our game is being broadcast right now in south korea and people are watching it on televisions in bars and my jaw (laughs) just fell open wait wait what he's like yeah i've been playing this game and i got really good and so i'm watching him i don't know what i'm seeing because i don't know the game and i'm watching things blow up or whatever and then the game ends He goes, I want you to see my leaderboard. And he opens it up and he's like, way the heck up there with all of these scores for his various achievements. And it hit me with so much force that here I had gone to every single chess match, which by the way, the only action in a chess match is moving a piece, a couple of spaces, and you have to be silent, no cheering and watch in silence for the entire hour long tedious game. I mean, at least on a video game, things are blowing up. It's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. to watch. So it hit me that because I devalued video gaming, I didn't know what he was learning. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what he had learned. And it's sort of in that thunderclap way, I started to become a student. You know, how did he form his team? How did he make his friends? What did the game accomplish? And this is the child who eventually went on to a great books program and didn't even take his computer with him he told me when he was leaving you know i've gained for 12 years it's time for me to now study books and do something different yeah, today as an adult he does game again and he's it's found a place in his life but i share all that with you because the that's how invisible the learning is to us it's happening mm-hmm. in the byways it's happening in their passions It's happening in the things we devalue and discount and want to either protect them from or regulate or tell them it's not good for them. Meanwhile, we're over here trying to get them to be interested in chess. And when I asked Liam one day, you know, which one was more effective in teaching you things, he's like, they were both important. I learned strategy in both, I learned reflexes in gaming, and I learned patience in chess. You know, he had read thousands of pages on both. I think sometimes the way that we see learning is if it isn't a prestige subject, it just doesn't count. Mm -hmm. So I invite you to be interested. Sit next to your child, play their games, follow them around for a day, read the book they're reading. Don't just read the book you're reading. Be Mm -hmm. curious about them and you will start to see where the learning's happening.
0: Yep. I love that. Nice specifically love your video game example because it's very supportive of this idea that I share with my moms and my listeners that you shouldn't take away things that they're interested in that also promote learning such as video games um, as a punishment for the school stuff because that is actually part of their schooling. That's part of their education, and it's part of what keeps them interested. So if we are constantly threatening them with a thing that is most interesting to them that also includes learning, we're really just starting a downhill spiral. Um, That's even a word. I think I combined like five metaphors there, but it just, it doesn't serve us or the kids um, that we're trying to get interested in learning by constantly beating down and taking away their, idea of learning too.
1: Well, I think one of the issues that we face and I realize it's a serious one. You know, the number of exciting things to do online is far greater than what appears to be the number of things I can do offline in a home. And part of that is a lack of access. If you're on an iPad or a computer that at your fingertips are thousands and thousands of web pages, online games, apps, uh, discussion, chat boards, and all you have to do is move a cursor around to find them. So there's a feeling of limitless pleasure associated with screens. Uh, the same with your gaming systems. What is missing in a lot of homes is the same experience of physical items like an mm-hmm. art table or dress up clothes in an easily accessible location, or binoculars and the birding guides hanging from the wall next to the window where the bird feeders are and bags of bird seed there to resupply. It takes some effort to stock a home so that a child is actually interested in other things. We typically look at them and say things like, I don't want you on screens, go do something else. And your child scans the environment and what they see is, you know, cleared counters, cabinet doors closed, a cleared off table, a stack of mail near, you know, the the family eating area, they don't see the opportunities. It would mean they'd have to open up cabinets or go to the basement or go in their closet and open up. They can't remember what's there. So you've got to make the space invitational. And I think Maria Montessori is a fabulous example of that. She had all these learning stations that were just sort of invitations to participate. I had a friend who was an early childhood specialist who uh, became a homeschooling mother, and she was expert level. I write about her in my book. Her name was Dottie. And I'll never forget before I even had children, I visited her home one day. We were living in Morocco at the time. So I want you to understand there's no Michael's. There's no Costco. There's no Ikea. Our resources in Morocco were very limited. And we had to figure out where to get things that were what we remembered in the States. You know, the Morocco versions of these. And this is in the 1980s. So no Amazon, no internet, no Pinterest, right? Everything had to come from inside of ourselves. And so I remember going to her house one time and she had these low round tables and each one had an activity on it. One of them had modeling clay. Another one had like tissue paper and googly eyes and poster board. Um, She had at all times a table set up with paints and pastels and colored pencils and various types of paper and a clothesline above it where you could hang your works of art immediately for display. She had felt and sewing, like there were these stations and her kids and the kids' friends would just come in and they would just instantly gravitate to a glue gun. That's what's missing in our homes. We're so busy asking them to get off screens, but we give them no meaningful invitations. And when we say, well, you should just go get, it's just, it's a bridge too far for a child. Even a 10 and 12 year old, they need to see it to have their imaginations triggered. They may even need to see you doing it uh, when my daughter was my youngest was thirteen, I set up a table in my office that was a place we could make collages. She was really into collaging, but she stopped doing it on her own, and so one day I just set up this table and I just made some tea and started collaging. and the next thing you know, she joined me,
0: and that mm-hmm. became
1: an afternoon activity we did every day for whatever period of time. I mean, I don't it doesn't none of these things last forever, but it lasted for a period of time where we just naturally gravitated to this table and we would talk and make these collages. I still have several of them. We want to create the experience that there's more to do than use screens. And we don't want to punish our kids for being on screens when there's literally nothing else to do.
0: Right, right. It's like strewing Level 10, <laughs> what Dottie was doing. I I love that. I love having things around and accessible for kids because you're right, we are asking them to do something absolutely impossible. Like we have these mothering standards that are absolutely impossible, like create this wonderful homeschool environment, but don't do it with all the cupboards closed and no mess and everything put away tickety-boo. And oh. I am not naturally tickety-boo, which is why I think that homeschooling and adding those enchanted spaces work for me. And I'm still, it's still unfolding. Um, Even after all these years of homeschooling, trying to figure out what that looks like. And just this past week, I added a new reading station. And the next morning I walked out and the lamp was on and the books were out put all over the chair. And it was exactly what I hoped for. Um, But without me forcing it and being like, this is the reading chair, you will sit here to do your reading, here's the lamp you can turn on for adequate lighting. It wasn't it was just like, I wonder if they'll notice. And then I went about my business and boy, did they ever notice. And it's like our new favorite space in the house. But this is also involved, you know, the plant next to it spilling on the chair. (laughs) And and then cleaning it up and it's totally fine. Like it's, it's okay. It's not going to be this. It was a wonderful reminder for me, by the way, the dirt on the chair that I cannot have this expectation that it be perfect or clean and tickety boo all the time, or that the books get put away every single time. Because one of the books that was out was um, the Rothman book. Uh, Farm Anatomy, and um, it was opened up to the page about how to milk a cow. And my six-year-old has a new um, goal of buying a cow. She's saving her money to buy a cow. She wants to know how much it costs. And I told her, you know, based on our acreage, we'd probably have to get a mini cow. Um, And we need to research, you know, it being a herd animal, if it would be okay with our mini goats, we're basically, you know, mini land over here. And would it work? And what are the pragmatics of milking a cow? You know, what kind of time commitment does it take? And she's like, you know, I just, I think I can figure it out. She said, but I really want to leave this book open because I'm not done studying it. I'm not done learning all the information from this page. So if you could just leave this book open right here. And if I had these cleaning expectations that did not include that, I feel like by closing that book, I'd be closing that chapter on her wanting to buy a cow. And instead she's wanting to craft and sell her crafts to raise money to buy a cow. And so that now the pipe cleaners are out all the time. And yes, it's a little bit maddening, but at the same time, she'll come with these creations of homemade flip-flops and, oh and glasses, God. and now she's she realized she has this element to put things together. And she even made herself a dress with pipe cleaner spaghetti straps out of construction paper and pipe cleaners and tape only. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, this is it. This is the home education that I want for my kids. And it's definitely not going to look like tickety boo. And it's going to look like creating those enchanted spaces like you talked about just now. And then also in your brilliant book, too. So gosh, Julie, thank you so much. You've, you really gave us a really solid Example with that um, and teaching us about Dottie, too. What a lovely example. And just as a side note, I had a friend, I recommended your book to her, and she texted me the other day, Are you Dottie? Oh, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, did you mean to send this to somebody else? She's like, no, are you Dottie from
1: The Brave Learner? Oh, my gosh. Isn't that adorable? Oh, and it was like the highest compliment, let me tell you. Well, it (laughs) truly is because Dottie has been such a a role model to me. Uh, Over the course of my Mm -hmm. entire life, I, I have found her to be honestly, in an ongoing way, such a learner herself, so curious herself. Mm. Remember when her kids went off to college, one of them majored in photography. So Dottie built a dark room in their basement so that when her daughter came home on college break, they could do photography together. Now, when I knew Dottie with kids growing up, she was more of an artist. So she used to draw pictures of her kids, but she wasn't really into photography, She got so into photography with her daughter, she started her own professional photography business as a result and uses that money to fly to Europe to visit her grandchildren because her son and daughter-in-law live in Switzerland. I just want to cast a vision that when you are in this dialogical relationship with your kids, the learning doesn't end at 18 and it's not about getting them somewhere. It is the joy of celebrating what you can do together that creates the learning. So in fact, just this morning, ironically, I was scrolling through Instagram and Dottie's daughter who lives out in California is pregnant. And she and her husband drove out here to be with them for a little mini vacation. And she shared a picture of a peach tart that her daughter made. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that family is always making amazing food when they're together that's like a cultural touchstone for them. And it made me think about all the hours I spent making food with their family that brought such joy in my family. And then I wondered, well, what are those cultural touchstones in my family? Well, even when we do Zoom during the pandemic, let alone when we're together in person, we play games. We play board games, word games, rolling the dice games, video games, we play games. And that is our number one way that we like to hang out together. We also really, really love a good tea time. So the poetry tea time that I started when they were very young continues to this day. Everybody has their own kinds of tea they like. Some of them have shifted to coffee because, you know, you have to individualize away from your parents. But we have this like time of day where we get the charcuterie board out and we get our little snacks and our special cookies And we have tea and we talk and we exchange our ideas. That's all built in the culture of family. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something I was doing to my children. It's something we were doing together. And today Mm -hmm. I have kids who are really active on social media, who are building entrepreneurial businesses, who run their own email lists. Well, that was our family culture. You know, Mm -hmm. their dad ran an email server for companies he's a freelance writer and a um, professor of english i'm a freelance writer i was an entrepreneur like i want you to see these are these are the ways that families grow the learning journey it's your family having all that farming going on obviously that's what your daughter's going to be interested in my kids couldn't be farmers we live in the suburbs I don't know the the front end of the or the back end of a cow. I, I, I know nothing. I, <laughs> I will be useless in the apocalypse. I have no canning skills. I don't know how to grow anything, but I will write a great book about it.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's you awesome.
1: What you get where I'm going with mm-hmm.
0: that? Totally. Oh my gosh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the long view for the mom in that situation. Um, and just the long view for your family too, Dottie's family, your family, all of it. It just, it makes so much sense. And that's what really comes out of this home education journey together. And what happens when you put people first and the relationships first, that is what happens when you are flexible and figure out what your family values are and what you you want your family culture to be. I mean, that is like square one, not necessarily what curriculum you're going to use. I mean, that plays a part in it, but just what you want your family culture to be about it. Do you want it to be a struggle? Because that's how you view, no one wants it to be a struggle. Let's be honest. But like when we view education as a struggle, that is going to become our family culture is, is struggle. And That's we true. have the opportunity to flip that on its head and you have shown us how to do that and how by doing that now, we will actually benefit long-term too. So it's really powerful for you to talk about that long view, having lived it and having observed it. Just thank you for that. Wow. I'm <laughs> Julie, you blow me away every day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, there's two other points I want to talk about just with mindset shifts um, that are really important how do we sustain this <laughs> this this energy what what is the secret to sustainability
1: oh such a good question so the danger of a conversation like this is people will suddenly think oh no i'm not allowed to use curriculum or workbooks um everything i have to do has to be sparkly and magical and uh, believe me nobody can sustain 365 days a year being the creative source of all imagination for their children. Uh, Your children have a role to play here. And there are days where everything just feels tedious and lifeless, because we're Mm -hmm. human beings. And that's true, whether or not you're a child or an adult. So the way that we organize things in the Brave Rider world, the way I talk about it in homeschooling, is that you can have these sort of turbocharged imagination, accidental learning moments, punctuating your predictable routine, the reliable routine of your life. So it helps if you set yourself up for a pleasant routine. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. just be a hardcore scheduler who says, okay, at nine, we do phonics, at 10, we do math, at 11, we do history. That doesn't feel very magical. On the flip side, you don't feel ready to not know what you're going to read every day, to not know how to teach your child to read, just hope it happens. That's the scary letting go of the side of the pool feeling that a lot of parents have. So what I like to recommend is this. Inject as much preparation as you can into your living space. Create that art table, have that dress-up clothes basket, offer your kids a place where they can get their board games easily, occasionally put something out on the coffee table overnight while they're sleeping to be discovered in the morning. Just keep sort of a little steady IV drip of some creativity, some sparks, some newness, some magic. Just have that as like the hum in the background. And then pick a routine that achieves the goals you have. So in my family, that meant reading aloud first thing in the morning. We usually would get up, have breakfast, putter around for about a half hour. And then we would gather in the family room and I would read. And I would read a wide variety of literature. I'd read from a chapter book. I'd read a fable. I'd read some devotional literature. I might read some knock-knock jokes or tongue twisters or a poem. But we would use like the first hour of the day to read. And they would play with Legos or their dolls or stitching or knitting or whatever they could do that was quiet while I read. We would follow that by running around in the backyard or jumping on the trampoline or if it was, you know, snowing and cold outside we'd stay in and, you know, do jumping jacks or play Simon says or something to get the blood moving. And then we would come to the table and we would do some workbook style work. We might do a phonics worksheet, we might do handwriting pages, we might do copywork and dictation, we might do math pages, but I would try to make it cozy. So sometimes we'd add candles or I might add a snack food, or I might make tea for everybody to drink. But we would do that for somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. Then we'd take another break. Then we would come back and do math. And some days I would do math as a family. Some days I would be like, okay, I'm gonna do math child by child. So until I call your name, you can play. And I'm gonna spend 10 minutes with each of you doing your math page. So it had this sort of rhythm. I knew we were gonna do these things. But if there was a day where something like the Pony Express caught our imagination, we would ditch the routine and we would just grab onto the coattails of that good idea and lean into it for however long it lasted. Uh, I remember, for instance, we were, you know, in our very well-established routine and we started reading about the origin of the Olympics. And it was during the winter Olympics at the time. And my kids wanted to create their own Olympic games with medals and metal podiums and do them in the backyard. Well, it was snowing or whatever. I mean, I live in Ohio. <laughs> so we made up these games inside the house and they were just silly things, almost like oh, sack races. Gosh. You know, just silly things you could do, balancing an egg on a spoon and walking across the, the room, that kind of thing. And we just ditched everything while we created an Olympic games for two or three days. But when the inspiration flagged, when we got to the end of that you know, ride, we returned to the routine and we would do the things that we knew to do at those normal times of day that we normally did them with as much coziness and collaboration as we could muster. And so to me, that's the way you balance this in the long haul. You don't have to be pixie dust 24 hours a day. You wanna be attentive to your children, You want to give in to inspiration when she shows up because your fun aunt, lady inspiration, is not a lengthy visitor. So let her have her way whenever she comes around. And then return to the comfort of the routine once the inspiration has run its course. And that's how we did it.
0: That's awesome. I love that. I love the ant analogy. It so, <laughs> it's so, so, so spot on. And I'll just offer a teaser to listeners that if you want to know how to organize this and and how to fit this into your planner that you're using for your year-end reports and things like that, Julie's planning from behind is life-changing. I'll spare you all the details and just know that you absolutely need, need, need to go look that up. Oh my gosh, that just, that, that's, still to this day changes my life every single day.
1: Well, maybe we should describe it very quickly. Planning from behind is simply recording what you did rather than recording what you want to get done in the future. So yes, if you, for a day, a month, I always recommend just doing it once a month. If you just write down everything that happened in that 24 hour period including, you know, the retelling of Goldilocks and the three bears in the bath, including the questions about cavities on the way to the dentist, including how two kids fought and resolved the argument, and then everything else they did, gaming, reading books, reading recipes, um, asking for seconds at dinner, talking with, you know, dad, if you have a dad about politics or about sports. If you include everything that happened in a 24-hour day, you will start to see a pattern of learning and anything that happens during the week, during the month that you did, that you didn't plan to do, you get credit for. Just write it down after the fact, and that will create this beautiful narrative of your homeschool experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Planning from behind gives me perspective every single day, even on the days when I, you know, announce an Instagram stories. We're not really doing homeschool this week because we're having a heavy work week. It's so silly for me to even say that because the learning happens every single day. And inevitably, I always end up writing down a whole list of things the kids did and learned anyway, even if it didn't come from me.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's so good.
0: Mm, let's talk about all of the modern homeschool support you offer. I talk about with my listeners and and followers, you know that modern homeschool support is different. It's homeschool isn't us just sitting at home teaching our kids by ourselves. There is literally just so much support out there online, social media, books, podcasts, videos, YouTube, you name it. It is out there. Whatever medium you want, blogs everything. And you have just a little bit of all of that, I feel like. You offer a curriculum, The Brave Writer. And my listeners are looking for good curriculum for sure. What age group is Brave Writer for? And it is a language arts curriculum um, specifically, but I'd really love for you to just tell us a little bit about that, where we can find it, and then highlight your very interesting philosophy behind what you believe about language arts.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, so Brave Writer is designed for families with kids between 5 and 18. We have downloadable products that are like writing manuals for you to use. And then we also have online classes that are both designed for kids, but also for you. One of the unique properties of what we do in Brave Writer is we train parents to be effective writing coaches to their kids. When I was doing homeschooling, What I really wanted was to be a skillful home educator, not to simply coordinate a bunch of other teachers to teach my kids. So when I designed Brave Writer, I had that in mind. How can I help a parent who lacks confidence in her own sort of writing and English skills become the effective coach and ally to her kids? So that was the goal of my original product called the Writer's Jungle, which is a manual written to the parent. Uh, But then we started developing online classes and additional products. You can learn everything you need to know about BraveWriter by going to bravewriter.com and clicking on the Getting Started button. I created a series of videos that explains our unique approach. So, for instance, we design our program around the natural stages of growth in writing rather than age or grade level. And the reason for that is kids are unique. Just because Mm -hmm. some child is 12 doesn't mean that she's reading, just because some child is seven doesn't mean that they don't know how to read. We want to address children at the developmental stage they're in for both reading and writing. So those videos will kind of walk you through our philosophy, they're done by me, and then also introduce you to our products and classes. The bottom line is this, I come from a professional writing background. My mother has written 70 books or more uh, Mm -hmm. as a published author. I grew up around published writing, and what I saw when I entered the homeschool space was a lot of curriculum that, in my view, does not work. The model of education around writing in school is the opposite of what professional writers do when they are coaching people who want to get paid for their writing. So I brought the writing sensibility of professional writers into the education space, and then I combined it with what I know about home education. So it's a very unique take on how to be a writer. We focus first on writing voice, and we separate out the mechanics and work on those independent of original writing at the beginning to give our kids the best chance to have their best vocabulary and selves show up on the page.
0: And it's amazing. We use Jot It Down right now, and it has been incredible. My children have, since we've been using it from the beginning here with them, they just light up. They love it when I write things down. They love it when I write stories. They love to have it read back to them and even to offer their own edits. I have a natural born editor. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And as a writer myself, I, I it just thrills me to no end. So the connection piece that your curriculum offers us at this point is just really awesome. I highly recommend people check it out. So you have the curriculum, you have online classes, you have your book, The Brave Learner, which to me is the IT homeschool resource. Oh, it's it's really honest and enchanting and, and encouraging. And it's one of those books that I actually bought as an audiobook. And then immediately went, went out and bought a physical copy. Wow. <laughs> as a busy mom, I do the audiobook book um, version of stuff. But if I find myself just absolutely in love with the book, I, I have to have the physical copy for my, my own library here at home. That's awesome. Can you talk with us a little bit about your heart behind this book? Was it a commentary on modern education or... Did you have a like a how to for new homeschoolers in mind or it also reads as a memoir too mm. and it kind of feels like a mashup to me and you just did such a wonderful job and here's my here's my masters in literature analysis of it <laughs> I appreciate I, that it, I, I feel like it was really nostalgic in some ways as you were talking about your journey and how it all unfolded. And then it has the learning, you know, over the years. And then it was it's also really forward moving because it encourages the readers really to take action and move forward with their own family culture and, and homeschool styles. And it, on some level, it is a bit instructional because you give us very pragmatic and easy to do and easy to understand tips for how to move forward. But then I don't know how you did this, but there's this co-creation vibe to it too. Like we are invited to be part of this journey through that action taking when we're done reading it. So really, truly, I mean, that is the reason that this is the it book recommendation that I give to homeschoolers.
1: I have to say that is the nicest review I think I've ever heard of my book. It was so thorough and you so captured what I was going for. I like want you to go post it on Amazon. I'm like, just read this description. Um, Because it is all those things. Definitely, there's a memoir element to it. I am a creative uh, nonfiction writer. That's my background. I really love writing that way. My favorite writing is academic writing, which always surprises people. But I've had the most experience with what would be like creative nonfiction or memoir writing, I do write from an autobiographical place. So um, my own personal journey informs or helps drive insight. But what I also tried to do was really draw from all the research that I've done over the last 25, 30 years in education. I, I did not get where I am today with the ideas I have because I'm so smart. It came because I spent a lot of devoted energy reading other people, comparing notes, uh, going to therapy, being a part of parenting groups, reading about human dynamics, reading um, all the educational materials I could get that are written by public school people, not just homeschoolers. I I tried to get out into the sort of scientific research-based literature to understand natural learning, brain-based learning, uh, what they're saying sort of in the educational reform space Mm -hmm. and what I discovered when I was doing all that work all these years, we homeschoolers are on the cutting edge. What we have the opportunity to do at home is what they dream about doing in the school system. The problem for them is they have too many children in a classroom Mm -hmm. and not enough freedom from standards to pursue the dream. But if you read sort of the philosophical, um, you know, peer-reviewed articles by academics, they want personally designed lessons. They want it to be stimulated by curiosity. They want the teacher and the student to swap roles occasionally. They want there to be a co-created experience of education. They want a child to have pragmatic hands-on activities, not just workbooks. They want the teacher to promote critical thinking, not just regurgitation of information. And literally, this is what homeschooling can achieve. So when I wrote the book and I did the book pitch with my um, agent and my, my publisher, when I first put it forward, I said, my goal is to take 50 years of home education, research experience and practice and make a contribution back into the story of what education can be. We've been off stage doing all this stuff in the laboratory of mm-hmm. our own homes. And now we have things to say about it that would benefit everybody in the education space. So that was one of the goals of the book. And what's been really fascinating, the book was published in February of 2019 and had instantly a lot of success in the homeschool space. And it was very gratifying, you know, after 20 years of working in Brave Writer to see it take off. But I did not know that a year later, we'd be staring down the barrel of a gun called the pandemic. I did not yeah. know <laughs> that the entire globe was going to join the ranks of homeschoolers for at least eight weeks, if not longer. I know, I and know so it. And what happened is this surge, I mean, like a tidal wave, really, of right. people have come online into our space, listening to my podcast, listening to yours, I'm sure, asking these robust questions. And suddenly the brave learner is taking off like a rocket. Like it makes last year look like a really modest beginning. (laughs) And that's because the information I'm sharing is relatable even if you are public schooling at home. Because we are now all recognizing whether you're a COVID schooler or a homeschooler, that the parent is the chief gatekeeper for a child's experience of learning. And if they're going to be home with you all day, we need to navigate that. We need to know how to do that. And homeschoolers do know how. That's the key. So yes. thank you for that. That really, really sums up well. And yes, there's plenty of nostalgia. When you get to the end of the Brave Learner, you're going to hear family pain and how we survived it, and Mm -hmm. how I look back on those years, because we all live through so much stuff. It's not all rainbows. It's a genuine life lived with a growth experience as the core of what it means to be an educator.
0: Mm -hmm. And your honesty in the book is just what we need right now. And the divine timing of it. Yes, I understand the influx of homeschoolers is definitely starting to feel like a little bit of a tsunami. (laughs) (laughs) A sure. lot. <laughs> but like you said it's part of it's exciting we could make it overwhelming but instead it's exciting it's invigorating it's going yes it is time for us to start sharing our ideas because it has been so transformational for us and our families and yes I think that the voice of homeschoolers um, veteran and new you know people who like you said are asking these robust questions and you're like yes okay, yes, you are bringing this new energies to the table, these new views, and it's just, it's awesome and energizing. And this is the start of something huge. And So much good is actually going to come out of this. I firmly believe that with all my heart. And, you know, your book is such an awesome resource. And I did just want to thank you for writing it. Because as a writer, I know what it takes to sit down and Mm -hmm. dedicate time to that and put all of your thoughts on paper. Um, So thank you for the brilliant resource that is The Brave Learner. And thank you for your podcast, too. You have been podcasting since 2012 and you are in your sixth season. Congratulations.
1: Thanks. It's really fun. The biggest limit for me is I had voice surgery back in January, and so there is still a measure of healing, and I don't always have a great voice, which is hard as a broadcaster, but this season in particular is a solo season, and I'm enjoying a lot answering the specific questions that I'm getting that come from this moment in time. So if your uh, listeners are interested in sort of understanding the questions homeschoolers are asking right now, this is a great season. Uh, It's called A Brave Writer's Life in Brief. I'm Julie Bogart, and it's on anywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, wherever you go.
0: That's amazing. And then the very last thing you offer, I mean, the list is so long, is the community. You actually offer online community support. Uh, It used to be called the Homeschool Alliance, and now it's called Brave Learner Home. Love that. Um, What does it offer and how can we join?
1: Oh, my goodness. It is a dream come true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are things that you want when you're growing up and parenting and raising babies and home educating And the thing I wanted was a non-judgmental space where I could pursue any educational theory I wanted, where someone would guide me in some of that thinking, provide me some readings, almost like a syllabus or, you know, here are people you should look up. I wanted to do it in a community where there was conversation because I grow the most when I hear other people talk and I get to respond to them. I also thought it would be so cool if someone would give me like, Lesson plans that showed how an area of interest that a child has actually partners with the school subjects. I imagined a space like that online and I never found it. So in 2014, I decided to build it myself. And that's exactly what we did. We created this community where once a month we would have a webinar paired with a reading. And the readings were not written by me, they were written by educational reformers by people who were experts in parenting, people who knew more about poetry and math than I did, people who were going to talk to us about self-care and advocacy for our own adulthood. And that space now has grown with an audience that has ever evolved. And what we realized a year ago is that parents were having to choose between paying for that membership to this experience and purchasing curriculum. And, you know, parents just love their kids. So if money is tight, they're always going to pick curriculum. So we decided let's make that community free. Let's let people invest in our program, take a class, buy our products. And if they do that, we'll throw in a free lifetime membership to this community so that they get the support, the companionship and the coaching from veteran homeschoolers that they crave. And sure enough, that seemed to be the right decision because starting in June, we've had thousands of people take us up on that offer. So the way that you can join if you're interested is go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer, bravewriter.com slash special dash offer. And inside you'll find out you know what you need to buy either in our program, our manuals, or registering for a fall class. And if you do either of those over $198, we throw in the lifetime membership. If, however, you are not using our program and you still want to be a member, you can just buy the lifetime membership for $198 or a six-month membership for $99. Like if you're a COVID schooler whose kids will go back to school in January, but you want to be in on it for the first semester, you can do that. So we would love to have you. It's it's just a phenomenal space. And there are so many resources. There six years worth of masterclasses and these one thing lesson plans that you can just literally use instantly to bring joy and magic to homeschooling.
0: Oh gosh, Julie, you bring so much joy and magic to homeschooling. Thank you for all you do. I will be sure to link to all of your incredible resources in today's show notes. This has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you, Julie. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. It was great to get to know you, Lori Beth, and I loved knowing that I get to reach out to your community. So thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Elevating Motherhood. Thanks again for spending your valuable time with me today. I hope you found some insight and inspiration, or maybe a little of both. If you like today's show, please leave a review on iTunes. I use your feedback to plan future shows and cover topics that serve you. You can also connect with me on Instagram and Facebook. Links to those accounts are in the show notes. For more information, including today's show notes, head to elevatingmotherhood.com. That's elevatingmotherhood.com. Thanks again, mama. I appreciate you.